The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. So many of the stories that scripture gives us about Jesus here on earth reminds us that he did not decide who to love based on how much they were valued by other people. It seems that the individuals for whom he showed the most compassion were in fact, in fact the ones who were the most looked down upon by others or the ones who would seem to have the biggest reasons for feeling inadequate or lowly. From Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector, to the woman caught in adultery, from the despised and dysfunctional Samaritan woman to the feared and distrusted Roman centurion, from the blind man living as a beggar on the street to the Canaanite woman living on the outsider in a Jewish community. Jesus repeatedly surprised and shocked everyone by attending to the people who were esteemed the least. And it started right on the first night. The Son of God had miraculously become a human baby, and God chose to announce his birth to humble shepherds. He was the King of Kings, but his birth was known only to peasants. The privileged witnesses to the glory of the Messiah's arrival were in fact the outcasts of society. God's message to us is clear. His love doesn't depend on what you have or what you don't have. His love doesn't depend on what people think of you. His love doesn't depend on whether you've made big mistakes or little ones. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made and he freely gives his grace to anyone who would receive it. Let us not be distracted by the world's definition of popularity, success, or wealth. Let us instead give thanks to God that he has extended his grace to us, and let us seek to be Christ-like to those around us, taking special care to show the unconditional love of Jesus to those who are unpopular, unsuccessful, and unlovable by the standards of the world. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. I was um, thinking this past week about uh, our trip to Bolivia this past summer because when we were in Bolivia, Bruno, one of the field staff from CBM, had a session with us about poverty. And uh, he, as he spoke about poverty, he, he reminded us that um, poverty is defined in different ways. This is such an important time as we think about all the refugees coming to Canada from Syria and other parts of, uh, of that area of the Middle East and and uh, not all refugees are poor, but uh, many of the ones that are coming have lost everything. And uh, when we think about that, we, we're reminded of what does poverty look like? And so Bruno in Bolivia was talking about how we tend to, to define poverty in purely materialistic terms of, of wealth and money and monetary value and stuff like that. And yet um, we should be thinking in other ways as well. Instead of thinking of income and in health care and food and shelter, um, the, the way we, when we do that, we end up making solutions that are also purely materialistic solutions. And 
He quoted a, a United Nations study of thousands of poor people across many nations that was done several years ago, and they were asked to define poverty. And the thing that was interesting was that when the, the answers came back, the, the answers included material poverty, definitely, but as well, there was a, an abundance of words, verbiage, and language that was accompanying material poverty, words that surfaced like shame and inferiority and vulnerability and powerlessness, humiliation, isolation, voicelessness, and weakness. Words that we would not usually have accompanying our definition of what it is to be poor. Stephen Corbett and Brian Fickert wrote a book several years ago called When Helping Hurts. They view poverty in terms of broken relationships, and they define four different broken relationships. First of all, with God, with self, with others, and with the environment or creation. And so ministry to the poor, in their mind, is a ministry of reconciliation in key relationships. I'd never thought of poverty that way before. Uh, a series of relationships that had gone wrong. If we think about that seriously, when we think of our intersections with the poor that we might have had, we can easily see how Poverty is a series of relationships that have gone wrong. And when I did that, I realized how very pertinent are the core values of our church when we think about nurturing followers of Jesus Christ through five healthy relationships. First of all, with God through Christ, with family, with church, with community, and cross-culturally. You could look at those five relationships and you could define poverty on planet Earth in terms of brokenness in all five relationships. Even in the downtown core of Winnipeg, where you might intersect with poverty, you would find uh, broken relationships. Poverty knocks at the door of each of our doors as well when these relationships are not healthy. Not just material ways, but Poverty in terms of isolation or inferiority or fear or shame and all kinds of ways that we would define brokenness, brokenness. So today and next Sunday and on Christmas Eve, we are going to be addressing brokenness in restored relationships. And today I'd like to begin by studying perhaps the poorest of the people who appear in the Christmas narrative. And uh, it, it's going to be kind of a journey of surprises. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the surprises that we find in the birth narrative um, this morning. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And uh, let's take a look at the way that Luke accounts for the Scriptures. We have two full accounts of Jesus' birth in the New Testament. One is in the Gospel of Matthew and one is in the Gospel of Luke. We read earlier with the worship team, the, the Gospel of John, the, his, his approach to the incarnation or the birth of Jesus was simply to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us or made His dwelling among us. It's like the Word uh, is, is to put on flesh there is He, 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 put up, he set up His tent. The Word is tent. He set up His tent and He dwelt among us for a while. A, a temporary residence Jesus had. Someone 
said it this way, Jesus Christmased among us. Jesus Christmased among us for 33 years on this earth. He set up his tent. The word became flesh. God became man. And of course, Matthew and Luke go much more into the actual historical detail. And we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand now and listen to what the Word of God says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in, in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, but I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they'd been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. May God bless his word. You may be seated. As I was um, singing in worship just a few minutes ago with you, we sang that song, It's Your Breath in Our Lungs. It's Your Breath in Our Lungs. And I couldn't help but glance over here at the nativity scene on the stage. And this week we have a doll representing baby Jesus. I don't know, but you didn't see him last week. But, um, and I was thinking about what an incredible event that is, that was. When the God of eternity was made a man, can you imagine that moment, that first moment when the God-man drew his first breath of this sinful, earthly, polluted environment we call earth? Incredible. The, the perfect, divine, holy, pure Son of God that lived for all of eternity past. Get your head around that one. All of a sudden was confined to this. And then in that moment in a stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he, 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 he had to open up these lungs that he was given and breathe our air. 
And it says that he, he made his tent, he tabernacled among us. He lived among us, dwelt among us for those 33 years. Incredible. The humiliation, the poverty that Jesus experienced is unlike any poverty that we could imagine because he came from so high and he went so low. And then think about it again when, when, when he drew his last breath. Incredible. You know, the, the whole scripture story of Jesus is so familiar to so many of us that we can easily forget how incredible it is. Every year we are privileged to have the English Conversation Circle ministry. And every year we have, in the last couple of years, we have taken a moment to have a, a meal and talk about the Christmas story or the Easter story on those times of the year. And I'm, I'm amazed that every year at least one person in our midst has been hearing the Christmas story for the first time. One of the immigrants among us, for the first time, hears about what Christmas really is all about. Incredible. Well, in the scriptures that we have, uh, we see that Jesus is born into a very poor family. And in fact, he lives in a very poor town or area in Nazareth. A Latin American author by the name of Hugo, I can't pronounce his last name, a book called La Practica de Jesus. He writes and argues in there that Jesus chose to live in the historical context of Galilee, way up north from Jerusalem, so that he would identify with the poor. And in fact, studies of Galilee in the time of Jesus have been done, and studies show that the people up there suffered more oppression from the imperial taxes of Rome and the Jewish taxes from the religious leaders because of that area being looked down upon. That's why when they found out that Jesus was a Galilean, they despised him. The higher society that lives closer south to Jerusalem despised the poor, uneducated Galileans, but that's where Jesus chose to be born. That's where God the Father decided the whole thing would be lived out. And not Jerusalem, uh, but the birth of Jesus a few miles away in Bethlehem. Again, why not the king of kings being born in a palace instead of in a stable? Do you see how many surprises there are in the birth narrative that just astound us if we were to hear them for the first time? And I think if we heard them through childlike ears instead of the grown-up ears that we are used to hearing this story with, and one of the surprises for me is, is, is the fact that shepherds heard the news first. I, I, get, I don't get that. The fact that the shepherds heard the news first is an incredible, scandalous news to me. The whole narrative, I think there's only one wealthy group of people in this. And the wise men, obviously, were wealthy. But Joseph and Mary were common folk. Simeon was an old man of no social standing. Anna was a prophetess that actually lived by begging in the temple. The shepherds were very poor, uneducated people that were out in the fields because that's what they were best given to do. And so this morning, let's take a look at the shepherds. 
who received the news that very evening, the very first ones to receive the news, perhaps hours or even maybe minutes after Jesus was born, the angelic host appeared in the sky and told the shepherds first about the birth of Jesus. It was eight days later that Simeon or Anna heard about it in the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus was taken there to be circumcised. But within hours or even minutes, the shepherds heard on the hillside. Friends of ours were on a mission trip to India one day. This is going back five, six years. And they were with the, op uh, the mission Operation Mobilization. And Operation Mobilization strategy in India is to work among the Dalit people, which is the untouchable class. And the strategy is to ad address the uh, untouchables by giving them what the other society classes do not give them. And part of that has to do with the education of their children. So the OM forms up schools and starts to educate children. And of course, through that education of the Dalit children, the parents and the grandparents are impacted by that as well. So our friends were there in India, and they were helping among this ministry, and they, were, they heard the story about what happened when one of these little children heard the Christmas story for the very first time, the whole Christmas story of Jesus coming to earth, being born, and so on. What, what this little child did was they began to talk about it in her family, and one of her relatives was a man who was a shepherd outside of the town or area, and he was always on the hills out there with the, with the sheep. And when he heard the story from this little girl or boy's uh, lips, he was amazed. He was shocked that the news of Jesus, the king, that came from heaven was first delivered to the shepherds. So he went down to the OM school. He went into the town. He walked into the school. And he asked them why it was that the news first of the king, Jesus, came to the shepherds. But then he asked a second question I thought was very interesting. He asked the question, why didn't you, OM, come and tell us first? Interesting, eh? Interesting. And so in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, the shepherds are caught doing what shepherds do. We pick up a very common story. What were they doing? Well, they were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks at night. The literal term is they took turns watching the sheep. Probably means that the, some of them were sleeping and some of them were keeping watch. They took turns. It's a, a watchful, vigilant group, this night watchman under the big open sky. It would not be surprising to us that God would want to announce the news to this group of men and boys as opposed to the bustling, distracted bazaars and marketplaces of towns and cities in Israel. The, the shepherds were probably poor men or boys who had received basic schooling, if any, just enough to get maybe the vague idea, the knowledge that there is a Christ Messiah figure coming, prophesied of, uh, but not to know too much. Perhaps even as Jesus was being born a, a short distance away in Bethlehem, maybe they were looking up at the stars, the one that was awake keeping watch. Maybe they were pondering eternal things. We don't know why God chose to give them the news first. But he did it in a big way, 
in verse 9, it says that an angel appeared to them and they were terrified. I don't know if you noticed, but in any, whenever angels appear in the scriptures, they're usually inspiring a lot of terror and fear. In fact, in the Christmas story alone, Zechariah receives an angelic visitation, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds. There's a lot of busy angels around the Christmas story. And every time they show up, there's, there's fear. These are incredible beings. I mean, we got cartoons and animus that, that draw things and they look scary and horrific or whatever, but these are beautiful creatures that are scary, okay? Can you put those two together? These are gorgeous, beautiful, awesome creatures, but they're terrifying when they show up. Why is that? Well, the Bible scripture gives us a reason why. It says, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. I think the, the glory is the terrifying part. The word appears in verse 9, verse 14, and verse 20 of Luke chapter 2. The glory of the Lord is not really an attribute per se like we would talk about attributes of God. You see, the glory of God is, is actually His very essence. So we would not say that God uh, has glory. We would say God is glorious, just like we do not say that God has holiness. We would say God is holy. And the Scriptures do not say that God has love. It says that God is love. Do you see the difference? It's very important that... That, that it's who God is in His person, in His, in His essence. And it's this glory that in, inspires the fear. For these heavenly beings had just moments earlier come out of the very courts of heaven in the very presence of the eternal God and the glow, the glory of His luminescent presence is all over them. They're dripping glory of God. And they come out of that incredible, incredible, pure zone of heaven, wherever and whatever that is. And they enter this atmosphere where polluted air is brought into the, to the lungs of the Son of God. And they enter this atmosphere and they still are, are glowing with the glory. And that's what caused the terror in these mortals on the hillsides of Bethlehem. It was not merely the physical stature of their being nor the element of surprise in the night sky, but it was the glory of the Lord that they had absorbed and now was still shining all around them. And in verse 15, we see that the angels had left them. They go into into, back into heaven. The, the shepherds say to one another, let's go. Let's go see this thing. And they hurried off. And then it says they spread the word concerning him, and everybody who heard them were amazed. We see the pattern here, don't we? If we take a look, shepherds had been told about Christ. They were curious enough to go and want to check it out for themselves to see and meet Jesus. And when they had heard and seen him for themselves, the result was that they came, became the first preachers, the first evangelists, the first witnesses of this event. And everybody that heard them were amazed. There's a pattern here, isn't there? It's the come and see, go and tell pattern. We see it at the resurrection too. I wonder why it is that we don't have the same pattern as often in our lives. 
Because that's the same pattern that we're called into. We're called into this personal encounter of hearing something about a living God that loves us, of, of being called into going and checking Him out for ourselves and knowing Him personally in our own experience, and then having had that divine, glorious encounter, going out and then spreading that news to others that we know. That's, that's the pattern, folks. It's not hard. I wonder if, if we've, we've not perhaps seen the pattern as important as because maybe we didn't get the glory in the encounter. Maybe we got the head knowledge and we thought we had it all, but we've lost the luminescent glory of an encounter with the living God. I think that's part of it. I think that it is incumbent upon us to wait long enough into the presence of God so that somehow the glory of God is upon us before we go out and start talking about Jesus. I'm not suggesting we, don't, we stop talking about Jesus. I'm just suggesting that let's make sure that we really have had a personal encounter day by day with Jesus. The glory would be resting upon us. So from the very beginning, I think God's ways are, are surprising ways. And again, I, I, I begin today with the shepherds. Uh, th there's many surprises that we're going to see in the scriptures. We could talk about many different ways that God surprises us. And um, that's what I'd like to think about before we conclude today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. For God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to, to nullify the things that are. Why did he do this? So that no one may boast before him because it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. You see, there's surprises all over Scripture. Paul is surprised. Why didn't God choose the noble and the wise and the wealthy? But he didn't. Not many of you, he says. One of the queens of England was recorded to have said one day, I'm among the not many. Not many were noble birth. Not many were wealthy or wise. For God chose the lowly things of this world to shame the high things. In a book by Robert McAfee Brown called Unexpected News, Reading the Bible with Third World Eyes, he talks about the surprising ways of God. And he refers to passages like Isaiah chapter 61, where the coming of Jesus is prophesied of as that big grand reversal where he turns things upside down and right side up. And so the poor are hearing good news and the broken are going to be healed and the captives will be set free. Prisoners will be released. Mourners will be comforted. Ashes that are on the head because of mourning are turning into a crown of beauty. Sadness is turning to gladness and despair is replaced with a garment of praise. This is what Jesus came to do. When you know Jesus, it, He is all about surprise. Everything about God should surprise us. Because you see, on earth, we have no reference points of God that are adequate to describe God to us. 
every illustration or metaphor falls short of really helping us understand the eternal one. And the more that we learn about God, the God of love, the more we should be surprised. Even if you've read about God, known about God all your life, all reference points that we have in humanity are insufficient. When Jesus speaks, he speaks about God with reckless abandon. I mean, if you really study some of the parables of Jesus, when Jesus speaks about the love of God, he speaks with such reckless terms that we want to come back in our logic and we want to say, yeah, but, but God, if you love like that, you're going to be taken advantage of. Think about the story for a minute. In Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the vineyard and the, and the, the farmer, right? Remember the story? Man goes into the marketplace at 6 a.m. in the morning looking for hired men to work in his vineyard. He finds a group of men. He gets them in the cart, gets back to his vineyard, sets them off to working. Three hours later at 9 a.m., he goes back into the market square, finds some more men, takes them out. Now, he has promised the first men at 6 a.m. that he is going to give them a fair day's wage. What does that mean? Well, in the day that Jesus lived, that meant this coin called the denarii or denarius. That was one day's wage for an average worker. And so they thought, well, that's fair. We'll work a 12-hour day. Well, at 9 a.m., he gets more workers, gets them setting to work at 12 Noon, he goes into town, gets some more workers. Three o'clock in the afternoon, goes back into town, gets some more workers. He's got a whole company of men now working on harvesting his grapes or tilling his ground, whatever they're doing. At 5 p.m., one hour before quitting time, he goes back in for another run. He finds a few more men and he brings them back out at 6 o'clock or at 5 o'clock. And they start working and just barely get started when at 6 o'clock he has the foreman go and say, the day is over. And he sets up a table in the, in the, in the barnyard or wherever. And he's got his cash box filled with coins. And he says to his foreman, begin with the men who started last. And so the men that started Five o'clock in the afternoon and had one hour's work lined up. And wow, to their surprise, they get a denarii. They get a full day's wage. Now, the guys that started at 6 a.m. are standing back here and they're a little put out because they should have got into the line first to get their wage. But all that put outness is gone when they see that the guys that started an hour ago got a full day's wage. And they're thinking to themselves, whoa, I can hardly wait till I get up to the table. What are they thinking like? They're thinking every human reference point of fairness and justice and rightness, and they're just thinking the way you and I would think. But when their turn comes up to the table, they get their denarii. And they're upset. And the Bible says in the scriptures, the farmer was fair with them and says to them, are you envious 
that I decided to be generous with someone else. You don't mind getting generosity when you're on the receiving end of it, do you? But you don't like it when someone else gets it next to you. See, this is, this is God's love. Now, God's not giving us this passage to tell you how to run your farm. Anybody that did it this way would have probably gone bankrupt by now. God is telling us this story through Jesus' lips because he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the love of God. He's talking about a supernatural, not human kind of love. And he says, that's the way I love you. That's the way I love you. Have you had the experience of being surprised by the love of God for you? For example, if I were to ask you this morning, do you know that God loves you? You've been trained in your head to think, well, yeah, yeah, he has to, he's God, you know, he, he's love, so he's safe. He, but if I were to ask you, do you think God likes you? Now you're starting to think, uh, some days maybe and some days not. Does God like you? Well, I think that the very difference of that question, that subtle difference, reveals something about your image of God. How many of you like spending time with someone who loves you but doesn't like you? Just because we have trouble loving people that we don't like or liking people that we're called to love does not mean that God has trouble doing that. You see, we have reduced God to human dimensions. One author puts it this way. If our brokenness is going to be healed, we will need to heal our image of both God and ourselves. For we make our images of God, and then our image of God makes us. We make our images of God, and then our image of God makes us. 1 John 4.16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. Do you do that? Do you know and rely on the love that God has for us? For you. You see, I think if we had a proper image of God's love, we would be surprised every day. And we would want to spend time in His presence every day more than we do. I read a story about a seminary professor who had grown up in Holland. He was one of 13 children. And uh, he told the story of playing in the streets one day in his town in Holland and uh, getting thirsty and running into the pantry where they had a jug of water. And he didn't realize that his father had come home at lunchtime and was sitting in the kitchen with a friend talking. So there is this little boy in the pantry drinking water and he hears his father through the door talking at the kitchen table. And he hears the man at the table ask him this question, Joe, there's something I've wanted to ask you for a long time. And the man said, ask me. He says, you have 13 children. Out of all of them, is there one of the children that is your favorite? One that you love more than all the others? Well, now this little boy is hooked in. And he presses his ear against the door. And he wants to hear whether his father is going to say his name. Or whether his father is going to maybe say one of his brothers and sisters. To his surprise... He heard his father say to the man, oh, that's easy. 
There is one that I love more than all the others. And then he said, it's Mary, the 12-year-old. She got braces on her teeth and she feels so awkward and embarrassed she won't even leave the house. But ah, uh, you asked me which was my favorite. Well, that's my 23-year-old Peter. His fiancée just broke off their engagement. He's desolate. But then the one that I really love the most is Michael. He's very uncoordinated, terrible in every sport, gets picked on by the kids. And, of course, the apple of my eye is, and he went on and on, and he listed all 13 children. And as this seminary professor reflected on that moment in time in his childhood, he said this, What I learned that day was that the child my father loved the most was always the one who needed him the most at that time. And that's the way it is with the father of our Lord Jesus as well. He loves those the most who need him the most, who rely on him, depend on him, and trust him the most. The way we began our service, this Advent reading, so many of the stories that scriptures give us about Jesus here on earth remind us that he did not decide who to love based on how much they were valued by other people. It seems that the individuals to whom he showed the most compassion were in fact the ones who most looked, were looked down upon by others or the ones who would seem to have the biggest needs for feeling inadequate. And it started out that first night the Son of God had miraculously become a human baby, and God chose to announce his birth to the humble shepherds. He was the King of Kings, but his birth was known to only peasants. God's message is clear. He love, his love doesn't depend on what you have or what you don't have. His love doesn't depend on what people think of you or don't think of you. His love doesn't depend on whether you've made big mistakes or little ones. God is love. Let us draw near to him with confidence because you know what, folks? A surprise is waiting for you.